everybody. Welcome back to A Bit of Fun with Emily. It's me, your host, Emily. I am glad you're here. We're halfway done with this month of horror films, and I have to say I'm actually faring better than I thought I would, or at least I was until I got to today's episode. <laughs> As a recap, or I guess for the first time, if you're just joining us this season, hello, if this is your first time jumping in. I asked friend of the pod and horror movie enthusiast Eric Holbrook to put together a list of movies for me with some guidelines, some structure. I didn't want to be just absolutely terrified the whole month, Um, so I asked him for a monster movie. You can check out episode one for my reactions to Bride of Frankenstein. One of his favorites, that's episode two, Dawn of the Dead. A horror comedy, that's coming next week with Tucker and Dale versus evil i think i don't have to look that title back up (laughs) and a movie that would scare the bejesus out of me that's what we're talking about today it was actually one i had seen before but i thought i'd give it another shot just to see if i was less of a coward than i was what nine years ago when it came out the answer is no i am maybe even more of a coward than i was a few years ago today we're talking about 2013's the conjuring And this is where I discovered my line in the sand when it comes to scary movies. Demonic possession. I don't like home invasion movies either uh, because that gets a little too real. That could happen. I think I mentioned that in a previous episode, but demonic possession is the line. I can't do it. I don't like it. That rational part of my brain that can explain away monster movies doesn't work with the whole possession exorcism thing. As a person of faith, I do believe in an evil force that means us ill will, that is, you know, kind of actively working against us. Do I believe that they have the ability or direct access to this, I don't know, let's call it a realm, this realm that spirits and demons can flow between life and death? I don't know. I honestly don't know. But if they can, if that is actually a possibility, why tempt fate? Why put myself in a situation where I am vulnerable to an attack like that. And so there's a part of me that believes possession could happen, maybe even has happened to people in history. And that's enough to keep me away from it all. And this healthy distance, uh, (laughs) I was trying to think of when it started, if I've always been like this, or I'm just super special in my older, in my older years. Uh, And it's been with me forever. Um, This healthy distance started way back when I was a kid in Sunday school. I have no idea what the actual lesson was about, but I know that I came home terrified of Ouija boards, the gateway to that realm better left alone. Apparently, I made a big thing of it and drove my parents crazy for an entire day talking about it nonstop. Have I ever touched a Ouija board? Nope. Will I ever touch a Ouija board? Nope. So whatever they were trying to teach us during Sunday school, you know, seemed to have worked. It worked on me at least. And that, along with not saying the Lord's name in vain, not ever doing a seance, never playing light as a feather, stiff as a board, holding my breath when I drive past a cemetery, those have all become the little superstitions that I've chosen to keep for the last 40 years of life. I've yet to be possessed by a demon, knock on wood. So I'm choosing to believe it's working. My plan, my plan is working. This is how I, you know, stay away from exorcisms. (laughs) And yet, I'm a bit of a hypocrite. It's been several years, but I once spent an entire evening watching Ghost Hunters on AMC, I think it was. They had a live camera set up in a supposedly haunted hospital or sanitarium. And at the very least, they told the viewing audience that 
I, I assume it was a live feed. They made you believe it was a live feed. And so they told the viewing audience to hit this button on a computer screen if you saw something paranormal or unusual or supernatural, if one of their little glowy orbs came by the screen, or if the chair that was there moved, or if something, you know, a dark shadow passed through the hallway. So you were supposed to hit this button to let them know that you saw something. And then they were going to review the footage and they'd have timestamps from when you hit the button. Did my attention span last long enough for me to find out what happened with this data they collected? No, it did not. I never went back to find out if actually anything happened or if anybody really saw anything. Uh, but, you know, I I spent an entire night doing that. Someone who doesn't like the paranormal doesn't want to open themselves up to that. I was just glued to the TV screen. And while I hate Halloween haunted houses, like the ones that are meant to the boo ah scare you, jump out and do that. I'd actually really like to visit someplace that is supposedly haunted, maybe to figure out for certain whether or not I believe. It's it's hard to tell. I know I would completely hate the experience. I would hate it. I guess just proving once again that I contain multitudes, why I would put myself in that situation, especially if I don't want to open myself up to that. Ah, I'm complicated. <laughs> A complicated individual. All that being said, and because I think I've stalled as long as I can, as long as that is appropriate, let's dive in to The Conjuring. The Conjuring was directed by James Wan, an Australian film producer, screenwriter, and film director. Horror is most definitely his genre. He has Saw, Dead Silence, Dead Sentence, and Insidious all on his IMDb, along with, hilariously, Furious 7 and Aquaman, which are horror movies for entirely different reasons, for just being horrible. My favorite thing when looking at his long list of accomplishments, though, on IMDb is the fact that he is also an executive producer on 95 episodes of the MacGyver TV show. <laughs> for some reason, I find that hilarious. Here, you know, is this creepy motorized clown face thing that I'm going to trap people and kill them and force them to do horrible things and saw. Oh, and then let's hop over here to MacGyver and see if somebody can diffuse a bomb with chewing gum. I love it. I love it so much. The writing credit for The Conjuring went to Chad and Carrie Hayes, siblings who were brought on board to refine producer Tony DeRosa Grun's script that it looked like he had been working on for years. This seems to have been kind of a weird passion project of his. Once the Hayes brothers got involved, they ended up changing the point of the view of the movie from the Perrin family to the Warrens. And then the brothers actually interviewed Lorraine Warren many times to clarify details about what actually happened. Because yes, this is based on the alleged real life exploits of Ed and Lorraine Warren, a married couple who investigated paranormal events in real life, I guess. So the film would then go on to be the subject of a six-studio bidding war and would eventually be picked up by New Line Cinema. The movie came out in 2013, and just to put the year in context in movies, the top 10 grossing films were Frozen, Iron Man 3, Despicable Me 2, The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smog, The Hunger Games, Catching Fire, Fast and Furious, Monsters University, Gravity, Man of Steel, and Thor, The Dark World. How depressing is that? That the top, uh, top 10 films, only two are not, uh, only two are original IP. Everything else is coming as a sequel. Everything else. How horrible. 
is that. The Academy Award winner for Best Film went to 12 Years a Slave. Matthew McConaughey got his Best Actor Oscar for Dallas Buyers Club. And of course, Let It Go became the earworm that just will never go away. So doesn't appear to be a great year for movies 2013 at all. Kind of just, again, kind of depressing. I, I really miss where you saw a top 10 list and everything was a standalone film that they weren't going to make a sequel of. The Conjuring starred Patrick Wilson. I fell in love with him in, oh, what was it? Phantom of the Opera. He played Raul. I loved him. And Vera Farmiga, um, they played Ed and Lorraine Warren, the paranormal investigators. And then Ron Livingston and Lily Taylor played Roger and Carolyn Perrin, the parents in the movie who decided to move their family of all girls into the worst house ever. Overall, it was a really great cast. I think the ladies really steal the show. They're given the most and kind of the most horrific to do. It seems like out of the entire cast, they really had to stretch um, and take on quite a bit and a lot of scary stuff. Vera, I have to say, Vera, um, what was her last name? Farmiga. Vera Farmiga, I first saw her. Oh, I should I should have looked this up a little bit to know what year this came out. But there was a show that came out and I think it was on like the CW or Channel 4. I don't even know if the CW existed the way it does now. And it was called Roar. Yes, R-O-A-R, Roar, starred Heath Ledger. It was the first thing I also saw him in. And it was about Celtic clans and druids and um, at one point they're trying to find the spear that killed Christ. I don't know why there was um, a, a Roman soldier who was in Britain too. He was also looking for the spear. They they met some banshees at one point and it was just a crazy show. <laughs> crazy show. You bet. It. Oh, I did write this down. 1997. That came out in 1997. Um, yeah. So guess what? Who guess who owns it on DVD? This girl does. If you've seen Roar, let me know. I would love to know. Love to talk to you about it sometime. And then I also love Vera on The Departed. Again, not given a whole lot to do, um, but I did like her character, even though I wanted to slap her from time to time. And then Lily Taylor adored her in Say Anything with John Cusack. She played kind of the friend that was in love with the singer, um, was always trying to, you know, help John kind of put him in his place, was very gentle with him. She was also on Mystic Pizza and then with John Cusack again in High Fidelity. She just, she plays, um, you know, kind of the smaller roles, very, very often not the leading lady. Uh, but I think that's kind of a sign of a really good actress that you remember them in roles, even then when they're not kind of right out in front, you know, doing the big thing. So really like Lily Taylor. The budget for The Conjuring was an estimated $20 million. It made over $137 million domestically and then would go on to make about $319 million worldwide. It opened in July. I'm sure there's a reason. I'm sure there's a reason that scary movies come out in the summer, but if someone could explain that reason to me... <laughs> I would really appreciate it. Why aren't they coming out in the fall more and around Halloween more? I I don't fully understand that. Why put something small, smaller up against a Marvel movie in the summer? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. That being said, though, The Conjuring was up against Red 2, Turbo, and R.I.P.D., which was a horrible movie. So it definitely, you know, definitely had a chance at being big. It sounds like it won its debut weekend, beating out Pacific Rim, which had come out the week before. That was kind of one of the big summer blockbusters that year. And I actually liked Pacific Rim. Not, not 
like the highest quality action movie, but it was a lot of fun. One of those movies that kind of annoyed me, um, I was actually talking to Watson this weekend about the newest Batman. When, when it cinematography, when the lighting is actually so bad, when I say dark, meaning that it's just not bright and that, that adds an obstacle to the movie for the viewer that I, it's unnecessary. You can create mood in a different way other than turning off the lights. And so Pacific Rim had some moments uh, where they, they could have improved that in their effects. So that's kind of the wrap-up of the movie itself. We'll get to the entering, interesting tidbits in a minute, but that leads us to what I've been avoiding, the summary, because I just don't want to relive it. it. This movie has stuck with me for a good week now since I watched it. Um, I, I, it comes into my brain from time to time, and I'm trying to figure out why, what it is about it outside of the demonic possession element of it that is really just startling to me, and i kind of holding my brain hostage a little bit. I did have to watch several episodes of Bluey that night to kind of help me out. Anybody else love Bluey? I could tell we should do a whole season on Bluey because I love Bluey. I think it is one of the most genius cartoons uh, that has ever been created. <laughs> it's so sweet. It's so, so sweet. And I'm going off on a tangent because I just don't want to talk about this movie. But anyway, it stuck with me. Here we go. We're going to go through this probably fairly quickly. And if I start talking really fast, I'm very sorry. So we're going to break it down into three acts. Act one is when we meet the Perrin family. But first we actually meet the the Warrens. Was that their name? I've already forgotten. Yes, the Warrens. Ed and Lorraine Warren. That's how the movie starts. You meet them. They're in their home. It seems like a very normal home, except that they have this very creepy room in their house that they keep locked where they... Because they are paranormal investigators, they collect, I guess, um, these haunted objects, things that have um, terrorized people, (laughs) terrorized people, and they keep it in their home, which seems like, you know, strike number one or two, actually. Why are you a paranormal investigator? Stay away from these evil forces. That's, you know, strike number one. Strike number two, don't bring it home with you. But Ed is showing this guy around, and that's when you get the first glimpse of Annabelle, who plays a little bit of a part in this this part of the franchise. She'll go in, go on to, you know, make it much bigger. But it's this doll who is supposedly haunted, um, possessed. Can a doll be possessed? I don't know what that is, but it's it's an evil doll, a very evil doll. They also, you come to find out that they have a daughter, um, a very sweet little girl, and that something has happened to Lorraine um, that has left her, uh, what's, what am I looking for? Like t- tired, yes, but um, almost like part of her soul is missing. She saw something during a exorcism that has just left her broken a little bit. Um, so we, they, I assume are telling us that. So then when we get to act two, which we'll talk about here in just a minute, that makes a little more sense how she's coming into it. So after we meet the Warrens, we then meet the Perrin family. We meet, um, Roger and Carolyn Perrin and their gaggle of daughters. They have several daughters (laughs) and they are moving into this terrifyingly creepy old house out in the middle of nowhere in the woods that um, borders a pond, a lake. And then on this pond lake near the dock, there is a giant tree that just looks ominous. And so you, you realize they're just kind of the family next door. There's nothing 
spectacular about them. They seem to be a really loving family, maybe a little down on their luck. Um, this purchase of this house uh, is definitely a stretch for them. They've got to make it work because they have no other money. You come out to find out later that Roger is, I guess, a truck driver. He does deliveries of sorts. I don't know what Carolyn does. Um, they probably told me and I didn't remember but you immediately like the family. They're moving the boxes in. The girls are learning about their new house. They play kind of hide-and-seek slash Marco Polo where they clap instead of yelling Marco. Um, and so one is blindfolded, and they're playing this. And, and that's when immediately you realize that the house is maybe a little sinister. Something isn't as it seems. They discover... The cellar or a basement that they didn't know was there. It's filled with junk that they're going to have to get rid of. Uh, the house is pretty run down, so it's going to take a lot of work um, to keep it up. And so that's part of the stresses they're feeling. But you get to know the girls and you get to know the family and you genuinely like them, which again, I know is part of the point. You want to like them because you don't want to see them in the situation that they're going to be in shortly, which leads us to. Um, the hauntings. <laughs> the hauntings. Uh, so there's uh, one of the little girls, the youngest daughter, she ends up with an imaginary friend that she can see. There's a music box that has a mirror and she can see him in the mirror. Um, while they're sleeping, one of the daughters keeps kind of getting harassed by some sort of entity that keeps like grabbing her feet and trying to pull her off the bed. Um, the father is hearing noises, doors shutting, especially the door that led down to the cellar just kind of opens and shuts at will. Uh, the youngest daughter again starts to sleepwalk, which she hasn't done in a very long time. And she keeps ending up in another girl's room where she's then banging her head up against a wardrobe uh, where you really want that wardrobe to open up and people go to Narnia. But that is not what comes out of that wardrobe. You then get flashes of shadows um, and creatures and entities and dead people, ghosts, I guess, um, poltergeists, whatever they are. Uh, the mother, she goes to bed and wakes up with bruises all over her, and they they kind of rationalize that away by saying it's some kind of like anemia and iron issue. But it just all starts to escalate to the point where the kids are terrified. People are actually getting hurt. Um, the mother gets thrown down the stairs into the cellar at one point. I mean, it, it starts to become very intense. There's one evening where they actually get the entire family out of the house, but they can't stay out of the house for good. They don't really have money. This is their home. They have to go back into it with all of their things. So that's when Act 2 starts, when they bring in Ed and Lorraine Warren. So they give them a call to see if that they if they can help. If is there really something going on in the house? Ed and Lorraine then drop the bomb that, you know, there's a lot that has happened on this property. A lot of people have died, suicides, little boys gone missing, horrible, horrible, horrible things have happened on the parents' new land. And much like in most of these kind of movies, what has left behind the past is now coming to haunt this family that had nothing to do with it. You do get a good sense of Lorraine then at this point, which again, this paranormal investigating, I don't fully understand. I know they're doing it to help people, but it's like, why? She's kind of a clairvoyant, 
why you would want to walk into a situation that you know could potentially be hostile and you're kind of open to those things doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, but she can see auras and she quickly realizes that even if this family gets away, even if they tried to sell the house and they move, their problem isn't going to go away because whatever these evil entities are, they have now attached themselves to the family. So the family's just going to be taking them with them wherever they are which is a little tidbit that I absolutely hate. I can, I can almost handle, you know, haunted house. Oh no, I'll just leave the house. That's fine. But no, no, now they are stuck to you uh, like a shadow and you are, you know, going to be tortured forever. It just gets worse and worse and worse. Um, while they're there, their presence kind of stirs things up even more. Um, and so they set up all of their equipment. They have some assistants helping them. They're going to kind of spend the night there and they have like audio recorders and whatever EMF readers or whatever those things are to try to see if there is actually something in the house. Uh, and they discover that there is, there is clearly some kind of an entity that is meaning this family harm, um, could be one of a couple because so many bad things have happened on this property. And then Lorraine also sees a dead body hanging from the tree out by the pond. Um, and she kind of knows that whatever is attacking this family means it no good so that they they really do need to help this family which i will give it to ed and lorraine their desire to help is very noble i guess but I, they make things worse too so so they collect the evidence and it also be clear becomes very clear that there is potentially a possession starting to happen with carolyn Perrin, the mother um, she is not herself she is speaking in tongues that are not hers, um, doing things that she would not do. So they take this evidence to a local Catholic priest to see if what he thinks and it to see if he could then talk the Vatican into approving an exorcism. As we start to come to the end of Act 2, uh, things are definitely escalating, people are in danger, bad things are happening, and Ed and Lorraine discover that whatever this entity is, is now seeking revenge on them and is going to terrorize their daughter through this Annabelle doll that is locked in their home that can mysteriously get out. Um, so a lot happening at this point. And, and they're trying to determine, you know, which entity it could potentially be. So then they decide, you know, act three comes along and that's where it all kind of hits the fan. Carolyn is clearly possessed. She's trying to harm her daughters. Whatever is inside of her will not let her lead the home. Um, and it comes to the point where they realize they cannot wait for the Vatican to approve the exorcism. They are going to have to do it themselves right in that moment. If not, Carolyn's going to die and she's going to take everybody with her. So they start the exorcism, I can say it, and Ed is leading that. Lorraine, um, he keeps wanting her out of the house because whatever that whatever had happened with that previous exorcism is still kind of haunting her he doesn't think she's strong enough to make it through this situation too she ends up having a terrible accident kind of they discover an opening in the walls and she ends up falling all the way down into the basement and then starts to see things um and everything is just it's not going well so they have the mother carolyn tied to a chair with a sheet over her. They start the exorcism. Carolyn, you know, is trying to be supportive or Carolyn's gone, but Lorraine is trying to be supportive of Ed. Um, 
and it's just there's a daughter missing in the house. So they're trying another what they one of the assistants is trying to find the daughter. And then uh Ed ends up calling when things really take a turn and they think they're gonna lose Carolyn, he calls um Bathsheba, which then kind of stops the demon temporarily, at least calms it down. Carolyn then starts to like remember who you are. You know, um, Lorraine starts to say, Carolyn, remember who you are. Uh, remember the good times with your family. You don't want to hurt your family. They find the daughter. Bathsheba then gets excited because she knows where the daughter is at as well. And she goes after the daughter. Then it becomes this mad dash through this house to not only continue with the exorcism and try to get this demon out of Carolyn, but also to save the daughter before she is killed. Um, spoiler alert, it finally works. I'm skipping ahead because it, there's a lot of visuals in there of them crawling around in the basement and um, Carolyn's face truly distorted by whatever is possessing her. Um, it just it's horrifying. In the end, though, the exorcism works. <laughs> um, Lorraine and Ed's daughter is okay, too. They go back home. They discover that the Vatican had, in fact, approved the exorcism just way too late. And hypothetically, the family lives happily ever after. So that is a summary of the... <laughs> the conjuring. Um, so again, I don't like the demon possession part. That really bothers me. Seeing a woman transform into something that is completely unlike how she would normally be, um, and not have any control. And she's lost herself to this entity. And I can't imagine if this is real and people do actually get possessed, can ha be possessed by something. How you come back from that? Do you remember being possessed? Um, once you find out what you have done while possessed, how do you, how do you live with that? It's just kind of horrifying. But I think the part that really upsets me and that stuck with me about this, this movie, and it sticks with me about a lot of different movies for a lot of different reasons, but it's when, um, people are forced to deal one with something beyond their control, but this this was just an ordinary family. They did nothing to ask for this. They weren't <laughs> dealing in the occult. Um, they were just a, a hardworking family who were struggling to make it by, and they bought a house, and then this happens. I think that's the part that upsets me the most. This vulnerable, innocent family who is faced to live through that ordeal is the most horrifying part of the whole thing. And I, it would have been worse, I guess, had there not been an Ed and Lorraine. Well, it would have ended terribly for the entire family if there had not been an Ed and Lorraine. So yay for paranormal investigators um, and people that will listen and believe. But that fear of something is happening, I cannot explain it. My children are in danger. And having to decide when to stay and when to go, um, that fear of, well, this is all we have. How can I leave? I, I don't know. I think all of that is what sits with me so horribly about this movie. There's jump scares, which I'm not a huge fan of jump scares. I watched 90% of this movie through my fingers with my thumbs in my ears because that always seems to help. I don't, I don't know why the evil thing on the screen cannot get me if my eyes are covered and my ears are plugged. I watched in the dead of day, bright light in the dead of day because I knew it would bother me so much. And it's still was just awful. It was awful. I If you like movies like this, I'd kind of like to know why. Why is this something that you are drawn to? Because 
I don't understand. I don't understand it. And yet I accidentally watched another one, which we'll talk about next week. Uh, so, so there it is. Um, yeah, I, 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 I can't recommend this one. <laughs> Sorry, Eric. I cannot recommend this one. It, and the fact that they made an entire franchise out of it and they just kept it going just is awful. A few interesting tidbits, though. According to IMDb, the real Perrin family visited the set of the film. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you want to relive that experience? I would want to do anything and everything to put that behind me and pretend that it never happened. Eight generations of families lived and died in the house before the parents moved in. Andrea Perrin suggested that some of the spirits from the families never left. Deaths included two documented suicides, a poisoning, the rape and murder of an 11-year-old girl, two drownings, and four men who froze to death. Most deaths occurred within the Arnold family, from which Bathsheba Sherman was descended. I don't know if any of that is real. But you do hear of, like, areas and plots of land and homesteads where there just are an exorbitant amount of tragedies. So you don't buy those. <laughs> but I, I know that in some states you don't have to disclose that information when purchasing a house. So, ugh, ugh. The film was shot in chronological order. They don't always, that, I, I wonder why they chose to do that. If that was for a particular reason they chose to do that for this particular film. When the movie was shown in the Philippines, some cinemas had to hire Catholic priests to bless the viewers before showing it. This was due to some viewers having reported a negative presence after watching the film. The priests also provided spiritual and psychological help to the viewers. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I maybe I would have felt better had I been watching with a Catholic priest. But then you have to also have to think about what did those Catholic priests think when they got a call and like, you know what, you need to go to the theater. There's a scary movie and we need you to bless the people. <laughs> I don't know. And the real Annabelle doll was actually a used Raggedy Ann doll that was bought by Donna's mother at a hobby shop and was known for not only leaving notes on parchment when there was no parchment around, but also attacked a friend named Blue by mysteriously leaving claw marks on his chest. The makers of the movie decided to make a more sinister-looking doll a porcelain for the movie. And boy, did they succeed, because that doll is creepy. Dolls in general are just creepy. They're, they're horrifying. There is a, an artwork, a piece of artwork right now on display at the library. We have an art show going on, and someone has, I mean, they are very good at what they do, but they have painted a baby <laughs> it's a it's a baby um and they have painted it to look lifelike and it's just sitting in our hallway um on the first floor of the library and it is terrifying my grandma used to buy me porcelain dolls for christmas and my birthday and at first i was like oh these are so cute and then i had them up on shelves in my bedroom and they would watch me while they slept and then they like very slowly started to find themselves in boxes or hidden in the closet because I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> I've always found dolls kind of creepy. I was never a doll kind of a girl. I mean, I had a few, uh, but I was usually playing with my brother. So I wasn't sitting and playing dolls all that much. They're just scary. I, there was also a collection. I worked um, a semester at the Children's Museum. I worked in their archives, and I got to reorganize their archives, which was really exciting. And as part of that, I also had to go into the collections that weren't on display to just check that stuff was still where it was supposed to be. Um, and they, I ended up in the aisle 
and had to work for about a week or so in the doll collection. And that was awful, having to open boxes and not knowing what you were going to find when you opened the box. And then one time while I was working in there, so the basement of the Indianapolis Children's Museum is is huge. They're, the collections that are not actually on display are vast. They received this big gift from a family where it was like thousands of items, and it's all in this basement. And there's only like two ways in and out. And because it's such a big expanse, people don't always know when somebody else is working in it. Uh, so they have actually taped glow-in-the-dark arrows onto the floor so that should you be stuck in the basement when the lights go out, you'll be able to find your way to the door. There's a lot of problems in that to begin with. I can't imagine, I can't believe I spent a semester doing this, but I was working in the doll collection. I was near the Cupid dolls at that point. I had just opened a box and it was an old porcelain doll and the lights went out. And you just want to sit down and kind of get into a fetal position and cry because it's terrifying. <laughs> knowing that there's all these eyes that could be looking at you from these dolls and you you think um oh is this a toy story moment are they all going to come to life at one time i did manage to get to the the door turn the light on but then i decided i could not be down there anymore that day i, I had used up all of my energy for that and i left i just left <laughs> So will I be watching the Annabelle movies? No, I will not. Am I stopping at The First Conjuring? Yes, I am. Do I recommend it? Nope, can't say I do. If it's your thing, good for you. Good on you. Not my thing. But that is all for today. Thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so that we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review so that other individuals who like random conversations about pop culture with someone who obviously doesn't know what they're talking about, well, they can join in on the fun as well. Or if you want to share the podcast, that's an easy way to get the word out. That would be awesome too. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at GnomeGirlM and on Facebook as a bit of fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today and I will see you next time.